This time on the Debunking Economics podcast, we look at exchange rates. What impact do they have on the economy and should we be trying to control them or let them float freely? Now, we don't have to look too far to see the impacts of exchange rates, maybe even the benefits. Since the Brexit vote, sterling has fallen markedly and it's paid off in the short term by helping make exports more affordable. If only Britain made stuff. Uh, of course, it's still winter in the UK, so people are yet to see just how much more expensive their summer holidays are going to be. As usual, Professor Steve Keen is with me to shed light on the subject, the question of whether we made the right decision in allowing currencies to float freely and find their supposed true value. Most major currencies moved that way in the early 1970s. It was a little later in Australia. It was 1983 when Bob Hawke moved the Australian dollar onto a floating exchange rate. Before then... Most major currencies were tied together under the Bretton Woods Agreement, which I think, uh, Steve, basically this was an agreement, wasn't it, to tie the value of a currency to the value of gold, the old-fashioned way of determining the value of money. Yeah, well, it was more complicated than that and actually would have worked at Amside better if it had gone with the original proposal that uh, that Keynes had for it because the idea was to stop currencies doing the beggar-thy-neighbour type devaluations that became quite commonplace during the uh, the Great Depression when you could... You know, try to get at your advantage by having a fixed exchange rate and then unilaterally varying it. You might drop your exchange rate by 10%, which of course makes your goods that much more competitive and makes makes exports from other countries to you much much less competitive. So Bretton Woods was designed to stop that. But the idea that Keynes had uh, was to invent a new currency called a Bancor, B-A-N-C-O-R, and to have that issued by the International Monetary Fund and issuing it in proportion to the size of the economy. So America, which was the biggest economy at the time, would have got the larger share of bankors. England would have probably come second. Germany, God knows what it would have got at that stage. Um, and and the, with those bankors, you would then, to make international trade, you'd then, to buy something internationally, you'd need to take your currency, let's say Australian dollars in this case, convert them into bankors at the official exchange rate, Right. submit submit those bankors wherever you're buying. For, let's say you're buying a... You know, a, a um, a computer or a computer from America, uh, convert those bank calls into American dollars and then get the computer shipped out. That was supposed to be the arrangement. Right. He, he spoke some sense, doesn't he? Because in a way, you, you, that's a way of saying, well, look, you know, we used to use gold uh, and uh, how wealthy your country was, I guess, would depend on how much right. gold you were holding. But this is a way of saying, well, that, that no longer applies. Let's uh, create a currency. But mm-hmm. rather than uh, relying on one major currency like the US dollar, which everyone compares to, yeah, let's have let's have a currency which is universal. Makes perfect yeah. sense. And he also had a, another thing tied because one of the one of the elements of all the attempts to, uh, you know, to 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 devalue and so on in competitive ways during the Great Depression were depressing demand in the in the global economy, which is actually where the problem was coming from. So Keynes said, "I want to have rules uh, which affect both surplus and deficit nations when running trade. So if you have a country which is running a permanent trade deficit, they will run out of bank or, and at some point they'll be forced to go to the International Monetary Fund and and have their currency devalued, and then with the devalued currency, they can then continue trading, and they can eliminate their trade deficit that way. Right, but but, who, countries, but yeah. who makes that call? Who says, yes, you can devalue your currency in, in that well, situation? Well, this is the thing. It would make through the National Monetary Fund, and it would have been, had to have been a, you know, a situation where you'd started literally running out of the bank walls for trade. So you might have had... I mean, I'm not sure the actual proportions Keynes had in mind, but imagine he said that you got bank or... Uh, which was valued to say proportionally worth 10% of your GDP. And then if you ran a trade deficit of you know, 3% of GDP for three years, you'd be running under 1% left. 
And at that level, to get more, you'd be required to devalue your currency because the argument would be obviously, given the fact that you're importing more than you're exporting, your currency is valued too highly, so it has to be adjusted. But it would have been adjusted movements every time, and the IMF would have been in control. It would have been in, you, you would not be able to do it on your own on your own bat. Right. So that was the, okay. And but un- the other un- side un- of it, under that model, just very quickly, yeah. under that model, yeah. then if everybody had, if everyone was running uh, their budgets so that they weren't running into a deficit, so they didn't need to make that call, then uh, presumably the exchange rate would be pretty stable between every country. There wouldn't be any fluctuation right. at all. That's right. But what what Keynes had as well is he the countries which were in a surplus under that situation because the accumulating bank call. Mm. And he said this is part of the positive feedback from running a trade service. It gives you the policies known as mercantilism. And in neoclassical economics argued that mercantilism would fail, so of course it worked perfectly. Um, any country running a surplus <laughs> like that accumulated the money, uh, could invest faster, could grow faster and maintain a permanent advantage. Keynes's solution to that dilemma was to say if you're running a surplus, first of all, you were taxed on the surplus. The surplus went back to the IMF and it was then going to be used, distributed in, in aid to underdeveloped countries. And secondly, there'd be other, I've forgotten the actual detail of the other penalty, but other penalties imposed to encourage you to stimulate your economy. If you didn't stimulate the economy, then you lost the bank or. So the whole idea was to mean that uh, with the previous systems we've had and with the current one we've got as well, there's a deflationary bias. A country running a trade surplus has no encouragement to stop running a surplus, so it continues doing it, like Germany and Japan and China are doing right now. Uh, whereas a country running a deficit is forced to, to cut back on its demand, which reduces demand in the economy in total, global economy. So Keynes's idea was to force surplus nations to spend and stimulate, while deficit nations were forced to cut back and, and reduce their spending. And, and it was a balanced system of rule. And of course... It was shot down by the usual suspects, the United States of America. Right. Now, the U.S. really started this uh, this move away from uh, the, the the value of the currency being related to the to the value of gold. So, just briefly for the uninitiated, like myself, for example, how is how are currencies determined? I mean, they're traded today. So, I mean, that trading, I'm I'm sort of seeing it is is based largely on speculation with very little value sitting behind it but i mean you tell me how well tell me how a neoclassic yeah, economist perhaps thinks that currencies are traded well they, they basically think that it's determined by the uh, by the value of your exports minus imports they look simply at the trade balance and how that influences it so if you've got a positive trade balance you're likely to have an appreciating currency and a negative you're going to have a depreciating currency and they really thought price adjustments would solve everything. So to, to backtrack a bit, the, the Americans overruled Keynes on the bank and said the American dollar had to be the international currency. But that almost automatically meant the Americans had to run deficits. Otherwise, nobody would have any dollars to trade with. And at the same time, the Americans had an enormous encouragement to run deficits because they could pay for the goods and services with bits of paper with their name stamped on it. So in that sense, it set up America to go from the world's leading surplus nation, which it was when they when they signed the agreement with Bretton Woods, to the world's leading deficit nation. But every other country that runs a deficit, and this includes Australia, can run out of American dollars. So at some stage, it has to go back and borrow those on the international market. America cannot run out of American dollars. So this is where a huge part where the abuse in the system came from. 
And ultimately, this is going back to 1972-73, but France was running a trade surplus at that stage with America and had a little bloke called Charles de Gaulle. Remember him? Yeah. And uh, not not known for being a shrinking violet. Uh, At the time, the gold was exchangeable uh, into dollars at the rate of 35 US dollars per ounce. And he'd accumulated such, France had accumulated such enormous enormous surpluses of American dollars that it literally had more money in reserve in American currency than there was gold in Fort Knox. And he was, wasn't joking. Duelka said, I'm going to, to take you know, all these surplus dollars and deposit them into Fort Knox and ask for my gold. And the fact that he could actually do it uh, was one of the things that spooked Nixon into, into breaking the gold standard. First of all, going from $35 an ounce to 42 commercial and 35 for governmental exchanges and then finally ultimately completely abandoning the link so gold just went you know stratospheric um compared to its its controlled price of 35 dollars an ounce and then what conventional economists thought would happen is that because exchange rates were now flexible uh the price system would kick in and that would eliminate all trade surpluses because you'd simply have an instant adjustment in prices and that's worked an absolute treat, which is why countries like Japan and China and Germany were running trade surpluses for decades. Right. So what about the question about um, uh, uh, people, uh, I, I guess, abusing or manipulating the exchange rate? I mean, Trump has accused China of uh, mm-hmm. getting an unfair trade advantage because he's manipulating the yuan. Um, now, it's, you know, it's been a fl- that, that's a floating exchange rate. It has been oh. since 2005. So how is he mm-hmm. suggesting that they're doing that? Well, they've all got, I mean, the, the central banks... Uh, again, if they can buy in their own currency or if they, if they have enormous reserves of foreign currency, they can be players in the international market, mm. and they are. So all these floats are called dirty floats for that reason. But equally, the point you made earlier about speculation determining it, it is, isn't just the trade balance that sets the value. Look at the American dollar right now. It's soaring. Yeah. Why is it soaring? Because people think there's going to be huge growth in the American economy courtesy of what Trump intends doing in infrastructure and Trump's tax cuts. Trump's new deal, it's being called. That's right. And they're all diving in there, buying yeah. the currency up in the process. So the currency is appreciating while at the same time it's running a huge trade deficit. And that's never had any effect on its value because it's being in America, it can't run out of the dollars in the first place. So it is far from the uh, a system where the price prices are going to equilibrate everything, which is the usual neoclassical fantasy. Right. So it's open to, like any sort of asset, it's open to speculation and therefore it's open to bubbles and collapses. Yep, and that's what we're going through all over the place. I think uh, like Australian dollar, I think, is massively overvalued too. And another fact which affects the valuation, of course, is your interest rates. Now, Australia's interest rates have been 1.5% above the level of the rest of the world for ages, which means people, I think it's called the Mrs. Watanabe trade. I kept on getting the actual name wrong. But the idea is Japanese housewives with large savings accounts that pay no interest see the possibility of uh, putting their money uh, selling yen and buying Australian dollars, putting it in an Australian asset of some sort, even being a bank account, and both getting a higher rate of interest in 1.5% versus zero uh, back in Japan, and also because of the volume of buying they do, driving up the Australian dollar at the same time. So you get a double whammy, they get a double gain. Now, the trouble is these things set you up for falls at a later stage because as soon as Mrs. Watanabe thinks, oh, they're going to cut rates in Australia because the economy is tanking, uh, then you, you both are going to fall, face a fall in rates and then the dollar will plunge. And this is partly why I've seen the Australian dollar range fall from everything from 65 cents to $1.10 American over the last five or six years. It's just been driven by this uh, 
um, carry trade, as it's called, which the Euro Reserve Bank denies it happens and therefore proves that it exists. Right, but because we're, we're basing it against the US dollar, uh, I mean, it's even though currencies can go up and down, they can't all go up. You can't have speculation in every country yeah, all the right. time. So, I mean, if, 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 if the US dollar goes up, then everybody else goes down related to it. So, so it does sort of, and I know you hate the word equilibrium, but I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, it's not well, it's, steady, it's, but, it's, it, but it's, it, it, it is fluctuating, but the you know, total amount of money is still going to be the same. Well, no, the total amount of money changes. This is one of the things people don't get their heads around. The, 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 if one currency goes up, then by definition, the others go down relative to it. So that's that's the seesaw side where it actually is a zero-sum game in terms of prices. Somebody going up means others have to, You can't all devalue against each other at once. Yeah. But what can happen as well is you can have one country creating large amounts of money and that money turning up in global circulation because they're running a trade deficit, and that can be an expanding or a contracting money supply. And, of course, what's going on in Europe right now is most of these countries are being forced into running uh, government surpluses, which is destroying their own domestic money and reducing their international demand. And that then feeds through what happens in the rest of us. So it is interconnected and it can expand and contract. And the bias, as Keynes feared, uh, has been towards contracting demand and leading to the state we're in now. Right. Hence his idea that we should have a, a, a currency that everybody trades against. Yeah, and on this basis, one of the strongest proponents of going back to that system, we'll bring it in for the very first time, is the Chinese central bank, which is intriguing because of, given the current state of global, the global economy and the direction in which various economies are going, I don't think China's not going to continue growing at the rate it has been growing by any stretch of imagination, but it is now the second largest economy on the planet and certainly willing to assert its, its might against uh, against America, which is a large part of the Trump uh, electoral campaign as well. So we may well find ourselves approaching a time where yet another Bretton Woods occurs. And this time round, I don't that the major part, country, which could well be China, would be saying, let's go for an international system rather than something based on a domestic currency. What would happen if you just said to governments, look, set your own exchange rates? Because, uh, I mean, they... Because there's good and bad whichever direction you go. I mean, if you if you if you take them lower, then your exports are going to suffer. If you raise uh, when your exports are okay, then your imports are going to cost too much. I mean, it's, it's, well, I mean, it's, it's you're going to find a balance, aren't you? Where where you want to be, depending on what the state of your economy is at that time. No, this is where Keynes, uh, from experience, uh, was right because when you have a, a slumped economy, most of the bias is going to be in favour of trying to devalue your currency. Mm. Okay, so you got that. It's 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 a game in which the players, depending on economic circumstances, are all going to try to get to the same side of the ship. Therefore, the ship tends to capsize. Right. So, do you think it'll happen? Do you think the Keynes mm -hmm. approach would happen? It could. Uh, I, I think we're going to go. <laughs> don't don't ask me about what I think is going to happen in the next twenty years. I don't think Donald Trump would agree with me about uh, some of the causal factors I've got in my mind, but. I think uh, when we go through the, the scraps I expect us to have, then at some stage we're going to have to go back to renegotiate international agreements. And in that situation, maybe we'll go back to um, something. We'll go to something sensible in the first place rather than making the, uh, the self-serving mistakes the Americans made to give us the system that's currently breaking down around us. But is it, I mean, uh, getting back to that point where it all sort of like, it's, it's a zero sum, you know, the, the gains and losses uh, amount to zero. Or are there perpetual gainers? Is there some sort of feedback loop going on here, which, for example, is giving the United States an advantage over uh, other parts of the world? Oh, it's definitely got an advantage, but it's an advantage that hollows out its industries at the same time. It, it's got the advantage, and one of the modern monetary theory people says this case quite regularly, that they can buy goods and services with little pieces of paper. 
which don't have to have any, any backing behind them. Whereas if you want to buy, if Australia wants to buy, then it has to, you know, it has to borrow those dollars. It can't make them itself. So that gives America a bias to actually you know, get goods in return for pieces of paper. But at the same time, at the point that Trump's been focusing upon, it hollows out the industrial sector because if you effectively have an undervalued currency and can buy, but you still buy goods cheaply from overseas, then you end up having you know, no domestic industry at all. And that's it's an actually an overvalued currency. Right. So um, it's, it's one of those things where because everybody tries to play the same hand, when you have governments having a capacity to set their own exchange rates, that's one reason they came to say, look, it, was just, uh, it just didn't work. Uh, we're all playing the same hand. Um, it's like everybody tries to open Mazir at once. Everybody tries to lose every hand. Um, that's not a good game of 500. So they finally went for this centralised system with fixed exchange rates, but with a huge mistake of using the American dollar rather than the bank or. I'm just wondering about this 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 point about speculation, just as a as, as a final point, because I mean you're you're right. We are seeing uh, massive speculation in the the value of the U.S. dollar at the moment. It's, it's the highest level it's been against the euro since 2003, for example. So I mean that's pushing up the price of the U.S. dollar on the basis of everyone expects that Trump is going to turn the country around. But of course, a high U.S. dollar um, doesn't particularly help the country in terms of. Uh, uh, it undermines what Trump is trying to achieve. Well, yeah, it makes it, makes it a very expensive place to do business in. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's, uh, I mean, you're likely to see, I mean, tr- Trump has taken on, I mean, his, his, his ego is you know, limitless, as we've all perceiving. Uh, he's taken on a challenge where there's so many ways in which the system can move that he's going to be jumping from one extreme to another, I think. So in this case, when he goes to the massive deficits, spend the normal thing that does to a country's currency is make people think it's going to fall in value uh, with america rising in value and the deficit stimulating demand which will go into imports then he's going to find those jobs aren't being created in america and we might find uh, tariff barriers being proposed and if we've seen him doing with his bluster so far he's quite quite capable of following through on those threats so it's uh, <laughs> We're definitely in a ball game we haven't seen for 70 years. Yeah, for sure. But on on this point of speculation, if, if you have, for example, something like we're seeing now with Trump, that the speculation mm. going on, everyone thinks it's going to be great for for the United States. The US dollar goes up in value. Everyone realizes that mm. ah, the US dollar being at this level is actually causing a problem. We're not going, you know, we shouldn't be quite so euphoric because uh, what we're hoping for is not going to happen because the US dollar is worth too much. Uh, the US mm. dollar goes down in value. So, you know, you That's see right. the, the yeah, reverse happening. So, yeah. so, it, so it sort of balances itself out like that, doesn't it? Well, it's destructive in the process all the way through. Because in the beginning stage, what you're doing is you're undermining American industry. And when you wipe out an industry, if an industry folds because it can't compete with imports anymore, uh, reducing the price of it again doesn't bring that industry back. Right. Okay. So of course. You, you, you do you, you do damage on the way through. Right. So go very quickly then explain to me why that uh, the approach that Keynes was putting forward why that wouldn't be so destructive. Well, they couldn't. Um, it have fixed exchange rates in general, and if you're running if you're running a trade deficit, you'd run out of the currency for international trade, no matter which country you were. So you'd be forced to devalue. If you're running a surplus, you'd be required to spend that surplus. Where the money would go back in taxation to finance development projects in the underdeveloped world right so it's something which is even-handed in both ways so in fact in the trump, in the the trump situation the, was deflation yeah so in the trump situation where he's spending heavily uh he would run into a deficit so he would be forced to devalue uh which is going to be good for the economy yeah. so it's going to help growth yeah, that's right 
Yeah, so that's that sort of control would be there. And a lot of people I know on the progressive side of monetary theory are in favour of floating exchange rates. I'm afraid I'm a bit of a critic. I'd rather go back to something like Keynes had in the mind in the first place and stop this volatility because it doesn't actually solve the problem, as we're seeing. We just have this new series of exciting challenges coming our way every time. But what would the uh, what would the currency traders do for a living? Oh, thank God. <laughs> they might have to go and work. <laughs> I have very little sympathy. But some, some people getting unemployed doesn't trouble me in the least. <laughs> All right. Look, uh, this makes perfect sense. I, I love the idea. And it, it is all to do with removing the volatility that we see at every level, isn't it, in, uh, uh, in modern yeah. monetary and systems? What's in, and saying what's an economy for? Is it an economy for speculation or is it an economy for its uh, social, um, you know, the, the, the welfare of its people? And that sense of setting up in the first instance, so the orientation is towards welfare uh, rather than speculation. Yeah, looking after people rather than looking after bits of paper. I, I like that idea. Thanks, Steve. And that is it for this time. We'll be back again in a few days with more explanations on how the economy really works, including economic cycles. Can we really stop them or are we stuck with them? And Trump's New Deal, will it work? Plus inheritance, how does it skew wealth distribution? And could spending on health create economic benefits? For all of that, to hear the full episodes, you'll have to subscribe at Debunking Economics. .com.au. Till next time, I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening.